Well, we are uh, continuing our study in first or in uh, the book of Philippians, but we have I have a long introduction for you today. So if you turn to Philippians, we won't be there for a minute or two. Uh, which some of you, you chuckling people, you know, once in a while I have long introductions. So anyway, uh, in, in in ancient Greek mythology, Narcissus was a hunter from Thespia who was known for his beauty. There are varying versions of his story, but they all agree that although Narcissus was very handsome, he rejected all romantic advances and eventually fell in love uh, with his own reflection in a pool of water. He was so wrapped up in his own reflection that he couldn't stop staring at himself, and he stared at his own reflection for the rest of his life. When he died, a beautiful flower kind of sprouted in that spot called today by his name the Narcissus flower. For those of you into into flowers, it's in the Amaryllis family. The character of Narcissus is the term, or is the the origin of the term narcissist or narcissism. Psychologists call it a fixation with yourself. Uh, We might say a person is stuck on himself, and from the biblical standpoint, it's just old-fashioned self-centeredness. As old as the Garden of Eden, as old as the fall of Satan from heaven. As Isaiah 14 describes when he said, I will do this, I will ascend to the Most Holy Hill, I will be like the Most High God. I think in Isaiah 14 there's five I wills. Satan said, I will, I will, I will, I will. He was the beginning, he was the very first narcissist. Because, because life is all about me when we get wrapped up like that. That prompted someone to write a little short poem for those of you who are into English literature. It's, a, it's in limerick fashion, if you're familiar with that form of poetry. There once was a man named Narcissus who thought himself very delicious. So he stared like a fool at his face in a pool. And his folly today is still with us. Indeed it is. <clears throat> and you know, for the, last, for the last 40 years at least, there's been a, a growing concept in our society that has infected every single aspect of our culture. It's been promoted in education, in government policies, in home life, everywhere you turn, It's been called, even by some non-Christian psychologists, it's been called the self-esteem cult. And today, in some Christian circles, the the greatest commandment out there is, Thou shalt love thyself. And, and, And the standard explanation of almost every interpersonal problem or relationship problem is to trace it back to somebody's low self-esteem. Uh, There's been an avalanche in the last 40 years of sermons and articles and books that has pushed this idea at every opportunity. Uh, Self-esteem proponents have taken every chance possible uh, to put a mirror in front of us and tell us that we should like everything that we see. And perhaps the proof text that is most commonly used in spreading this message is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I want you to look at that passage, if you would, for just a moment. It's in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. And I want to read just a few of these verses. We won't read this entire passage, or my long introduction will be even longer. But we'll read just just a portion here of Luke chapter 10, 
And we're going to begin to read in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, meaning the lawyer, the scribe, basically they are, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So this lawyer, we would think of them as a scribe, not a lawyer in the sense that we think of lawyers in our modern era, but a person who made copies of the law. That's why he was called a lawyer. He was, we would think of him as a scribe. His entire job was to make copies of the Old Testament law. Of course, no printing presses, so everything was hand copied. So this scribe, he, he, he asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. But according to Luke, according to Dr. Luke, the question is not sincere. He has an ulterior motive because this scribe is not really seeking eternal life. He just wants to test Jesus. He wants to maybe trick him into contradicting something in the Old Testament, which is impossible, of course. Then Jesus, of course, knowing the man's heart, he turns the question back to him. So what is written in the law, Jesus says? How do you read it? The man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus simply agrees with him. He says, you're right, do this, he says, and you'll live. Of course, if we could actually do that, we would be perfect. And we are not perfect, nor are we even close, but in theory, if we could be perfect, we could inherit eternal life. Of course, we're all sinners and there's no way we can do it. And the law, as you know, was given to point us to Christ. Not to try to give us some standard to attempt to live up to, which is impossible for us. It was to, it was to make us realize that we are sinners and that we can't live up to it. And it, the, the law, the Apostle Paul said, was our schoolmaster to, to, to bring us to Christ. And so he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And who of us has ever done that? If you think you have, we'll pray for your pride. <laughs> Nobody has ever lived up to that. Love the Lord our God with all our heart. We hardly do that for one day. You know, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, you just said, yeah, you're right. Do that, you live. And of course, you know that we are, we are actually perfect in Christ. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, in God's eyes, you are perfect. You have not, your, your sin's all gone. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this great verse I quote to you periodically. And he says, He made Him, meaning God made Jesus, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, by His death and resurrection, Jesus Christ takes all of our sin and He gives us all of His righteousness. And, and so in Christ... We are perfect, but as we trudge our way through this old sin-cursed world, we are definitely not perfect, nor are we even close to perfect. You can't trick the Lord Jesus, of course, he's the all-knowing, infinite God in the flesh, but now, now you see the scribe is in trouble, because it is evident to everybody around that he already knew the answer to his question. 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so it becomes clear that, that his motive for asking the question must have been something other than what it seemed. So everybody in the crowd can now see he's not sincere. He's just being hypocritical. He asked Jesus a question he already knew the answer to. So what's he going to do now? Going to bow his head in shame and repent? No. Or will he, like tens of millions of other human beings before him and after him, be like he says in verse 29, he wanting to justify himself. He's just trying to save face, just trying to justify himself. So he asks this question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus answers by telling the story we call the Good, the good Samaritan. We won't read the whole story, but, but <clears throat> another way of, answer, of asking this lawyer's question would be, Rabbi, who do I not have to love? Love my neighbor as myself. Okay, well, who's my neighbor? Which, which groups in our society are excluded from this commandment to love my neighbor? Surely the oppressive Romans, I mean, I certainly don't have to love them, do I? And those disgusting tax collectors, and those half-breed Samaritans, Surely those groups are not included in the term neighbor. So Rabbi, just tell me who my neighbor is so I can figure out who I'm supposed to love and who I get to not love. And of course you know this well-known parable, this man, probably a Jew, on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Robbers attack him. They strip him and beat him and they leave him half dead on the side of the road. And along comes a priest, and then along comes a Levi. They see the man who's on, who's laying there all, all beat up, and they go by on the other side. And then came a Samaritan, and I'm sure as soon as Jesus said the word, the scribes going, oh, a Samaritan. Yeah, wouldn't you know it, yeah. A Samaritan comes by, and when he saw the wounded man, he felt compassion for him. He goes to him, he treats his wounds, he bandages him up, he puts him on his own horse or his donkey, he brings him to an inn, he takes care of him till the next day. Then he gives the innkeeper his own money to take care of the man and said, I'll stop by on my way back through and I'll make up the differences if it wasn't enough. Then Jesus puts the question back to the scribe. So which of these three was a neighbor to the one who fell among thieves? Well, the scribe can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. So he just says, um, the one who showed mercy to him. Jesus responds, go and do likewise. You see, the scribe's problem was not the definition of neighbor. His problem, and the problem of all of us, every human being, was can we actually become the kind of person who loves his neighbor as himself? Because if we can, then we can't just pass by on the other side. We have to be willing to interrupt our schedules and risk some embarrassment and use our own resources and part with some of our money for the sake of somebody who's suffering. And you see, back in Jesus' day, that's the way the command, love your neighbor as yourself, was misunderstood. And that's how Jesus responded to it. Love your neighbor as yourself wasn't that I get to have this select list of neighbors and decide who I'm supposed to love and everybody else I, I can hate. You remember that was Jonah's problem. He hated the Assyrians. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wanted God to destroy them all. And there's a lot of things. It's just like 
It's like James and John, you know, when that, that little village wouldn't, uh, wouldn't respond to the preaching of the Lord Jesus. Shall we call down fire from heaven, God, and burn them all up? I'm sure Jesus is just shaking his head. Oh, you human beings, you just don't get it, do you? Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy everybody. And so Jesus comes back with this thought, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's, that command in Jesus' day, that error hinged on who was my neighbor. The modern error today regarding this verse hinges on the term as yourself. Because the, the modern interpretation assumes that the phrase as yourself is a command instead of a statement. It, it, it's taught by the self-esteem people that Jesus is calling people to love themselves so then they can love others because they love themselves. So it's kind of put together like this. Our first task in obedience to Jesus is to develop, is to develop our own self-esteem so then we can love each other or love others as much as we now love ourselves. You can't love others until you love you, so it is said. Is that what Jesus is saying with this commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself? I don't think so. I don't want to get into a big, gigantic English grammar lesson here, or Greek grammar lesson here, but the command in this verse, the command is love your neighbor. As yourself is an adverbial phrase. As is an adverb. It means similar to. As is modifying the verb love. We are to love our neighbors in a similar way that we already love ourselves. Jesus is not commanding self-love. He, he is assuming that it already exists. In fact, the Apostle Paul very, very plainly said it in Ephesians 5.29. He said, no man ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. That's why the Apostle Paul, that great passage on husband-wife relations, talking about my husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, because no man ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes it and he cherishes it. We're all, we're, we're all even, you know, I've got to tell you this, well, one of our biggest challenges as followers of Jesus is that our focus always tends to be on us. We got just we got a little tiny narcissist living down inside us. And we all tend to get a little too wrapped up in our own reflections. And self-love is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Jesus says in this passage, start focusing on others in the same way that you focus on yourself. Seek the good of your neighbor just as you naturally seek your own good. Another way Jesus said essentially the same thing was in the famous golden rule. Whatever you wish that men would do to you, so do to them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's the little adverb as again. Treat others in a similar way that you wish to be treated. Love your neighbor in a similar way that you want to be loved. And with that little statement and that story, Jesus kind of touches the nerve of every selfish lifestyle that we live. Are we seeking the eternal good of others with the same zeal and determination that we seek our own good? And with that long introduction, look now at Philippians chapter 2. 
We worked our way through Philippians chapter 1 the last four weeks or so. Now as we move into chapter 2, just want to read, just going to look at the first four verses today of Philippians chapter 2. I read a story last week about a young couple who were dating. The girl broke it off after dating for about a year. She just didn't think they were right for each other, she said. Then a couple months later, the fellow gets a text from her. Oh, sweetheart, I've really been missing you. I thought I could live without you, but I can't. I think about you all the time. Let's get together again. P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. (laughs) A little narcissist down inside us all the time, isn't it? Just looking out for me, 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 me. Well, let's read Paul's admonition to his friends here in Philippi. First four verses of Philippians 2. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Bible students always say when you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. So Paul begins there in Philippians 2.1, therefore... Meaning, remember from chapter 1, and I'm sure you remember everything we taught from chapter 1. Remember from chapter 1, for me to live, Christ, to die, gain. Christ should be clearly seen through me. My conduct should be worthy of the gospel. I should be living like I'm a citizen of heaven. I should not be intimidated by the enemies of the cross. We should be, as we saw last week, standing together and striving together, and if need be, suffering together. Therefore... Because of all of that, therefore, he says, also be united in looking out for each other. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, he paraphrases verse 1 this way. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care... Then he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, be on the same page. The little word there, if, means because or since. Because there is consolation or encouragement in Christ. Because there is comfort of love. And that word picture, the comfort of love, pictures a, a mother or a parent whispering to their little child as they hug them. As you would comfort a child who is, who, who is hurt. Paul says, because there is consolation or encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort of love, this this is the Lord Jesus ministering His grace to us. There is fellowship in the Spirit. There is affection and mercy. And then in verse 2, we see this full circle of unity in the local church. He talks about one mind and one love and being in one accord, meaning that the word literally means one soul. You have one mind and one love and one soul. And it's not that we're carbon copies of each other, but that we are aiming the same direction and that we are focused on the same goal and that we have a heart for the same things. 
we're going to see later on in the book of Philippians, there was, there was a little controversy going on be- between a couple of women in the church. Paul does not discuss what the controversy is, but he mentions it actually calls the women by name. I thought, how'd you like to be having a fight with somebody in your local church, and now your name is inscribed on the annals of church history in the, in the scripture for the next 2,000 years? Yikes. Be careful. <laughs> you never know who's going to write down what. Of course, there's no, no scripture today, but here, here we have two ladies. Paul doesn't say what they're arguing about, he, but, but, but he does call them by name, and, and he mentions it, and he pleads with them to be of the same mind. You see, local church issues are far too common. And what happens, or it happens quite often, when, when our focus shifts from the gospel to personal preferences. And when our focus shifts from the Lord Jesus Christ to me. A fellow named Kent Hughes, pastored in Wheaton, Illinois for many years, he tells a story about a church in Dallas. This is quite a number of years ago. The church became divided and the rift was so bitter that each side instituted a lawsuit trying to dispossess the other side from the church's property. Despite the scriptural warnings about 1 Corinthians 6, don't take those matters before civil courts, Paul writes. Of course, the story hit the Dallas newspapers. You'd have to be guaranteed that would happen. Garnered considerable interest from the readers. The judge apparently had some sort of biblical background, and he basically said it wasn't the province of the court to decide those kind of matters until the church had worked it out with other churches in, in their denominational group. So the, so the dispute went to some sort of an ecclesiastical court, and eventually the decision was made to award the real estate and the property to one side in the debate. Well, of course, the losers withdrew and formed another church nearby. Unfortunately, that's American church growth sometimes. Right. Yeah, <laughs> too, too bad, but, that, but that, that happens. And it was reported in the Dallas newspapers, you will not believe this, the church court traced the trouble to its source, the trouble began when at a church dinner, one of the church elders had been served a smaller slice of ham than somebody else's kid who was sitting next to him. Yikes. Unless you think fights like that only happen in America. A fellow a number of years ago, Leslie Flynn, he wrote a book with a fascinating title. I don't, I don't have the book. I might see if it's online. Great Church Fights. I thought, do I, do I really want to read that? I don't know. But this, but this story is from Wales. A Welsh newspaper talks about a church who was looking for a new pastor. And, and this, this newspaper article was, Yesterday the two opposition groups who didn't like the other pastor, they both sent ministers to the pulpit. One group sat over here, one group sat over here. Two ministers went to the pulpit. They both spoke at the same time, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns. This side of the congregation sang some. This side of the congregation sang others. Each, try, each side trying to drown out the other one. Then the groups began shouting each other, waving their Bibles around in anger. The morning service turned into absolute bedlam. And uh, through it all, the two preachers continued to try to outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, some, some deacon went and called, a, called the cops. Two cops came in and began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. They advised the 40 persons in the church to go home. The rivals filed out, still arguing. The newspaper report says last night one of the group called a Let's Be Friends meeting. It broke up in an argument. 
Now we laugh, it's crazy, you shake your head and roll your eyes like, well, what in the world? Although very serious and very, very sad. What in the world does that do to the testimony of the gospel? That is horrifying. Over a stupid piece of ham. Or whatever else. And we've probably all experienced, I've been in the ministry a long time now, we've experienced enough disunity in churches to know what it looks like. Paul had heard of disunity in his beloved Philippian church, and now he says, I want to encourage you, strive for spiritual unity. And you know, again, I, I mean, I tell you this periodically, verse 3 and 4, if you're a Bible highlighter or a Bible un, uh, underliner, I hope you're memorizing some verses Verses 3 and 4 form one of the greatest statements on relationships that the Holy Spirit of God left us in the Scripture. If we can practice verse 3 and verse 4, we will experience peace in our personal relationships and peace in our homes and peace in our churches. Paul gives us a little, I call it a little four-step formula for unity. Let's read those verses again. Verse 3 and verse 4. Because he said, you know, if there's any consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, fulfill my joy, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind, and this is how you do that. Let nothing be done. Let me read that again. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. If we could live verse 3 and verse, in, 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 in verse 4, we just eliminated 99.9% .9 of every relationship problem we will ever have on this earth. If we could do that. In your home, in your church, in your business, in your neighborhood. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let me give you four, four brief words here. We'll wind up here in just a moment. The first part of the formula, reject selfishness. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Reject selfishness. Number two, squash ego. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Reject selfishness. Squash ego. Just, of course, ego, I almost hate to use the word. It's a, it's a, it's a modern psychology word. It just means pride, basically. But you know what I'm talking about. Reject selfishness. Squash ego. Number three, promote humility. And number four, focus on others. If we can live that every single day, reject selfishness, squash ego, promote humility, focus on others, we have already fixed every potential church problem that there ever would be. You've already fixed every home life problem that will ever happen. Watchman Nee, the Chinese evangelist of a past generation, 
died in a communist prison in China back in the early 70s, I believe. Watchman Nee wrote a number of books. Uh, I've got a couple of them. Interesting writing. He tells of a, of a Christian he once knew in China, a Christian farmer. He was a very poor rice farmer. His fields were way up high on a mountain. There was one, uh, there was one stream with a small pond and, and a hand pump uh, that guys would use to flood their rice fields. They got to flood their rice fields almost every day because they just, you know, you know you've probably seen rice paddies. There's just always just a few inches of water in those rice fields. And there was, it, was, it was a hand pump, nothing electric up there. He did hand pump. He turning this crank, pumping water, flooding his rice paddy every, every single day. And every day he would pump water in, into the paddies of his rice fields. And then he would come back the next day and he would find that, that a neighbor who lived down the hill just below him would open his dike to let all the water out to flood his fields with all the water that the guy had just pumped up above. For a while, he just kind of ignored it, kept pumping the water, kept pumping the water. Last, as it began to damage his crop, he, he, got, he got desperate. He met and he prayed with some other believers in Christ. He said, I want to come up with a Christ-honoring solution to this. I don't want to hurt the gospel. I don't want to hurt my chance to witness to this man. I want to come up with some way that I that I can that that, that we can fix this. I mean, I'm going to, we're all going to starve to death if, if my rice fields don't don't produce. What 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 can we do? And they spent some time in in prayer, and he came up with a solution. And the next morning, he rose up early in the morning, and he ran his pipes and and ran his pump and filled his neighbor's field. Then. He moved his pipes and he filled his field. Double the pumping time. Watchman Nee says, just a few weeks later, his neighbor came to Christ. Because his unbelief was overcome by a genuine demonstration of a Christian's humility and Christ-like character. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition and conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The famous Bible teacher now with the Lord Howard Hendricks tells about the time he was ministering in a church in Washington, D.C. It was an early morning prayer breakfast. There were a bunch of people there from the military, quite a few people from various government offices, some craftsmen, some laborers of various kinds, quite a mix. After Dr. Hendricks had finished speaking, he noticed Senator Mark Hatfield, now deceased, he was an Oregon senator for about 30 years. He noticed Senator Mark Hatfield stacking chairs and picking up napkins that had fallen on the floor. In retelling the story, Dr. Hendricks said, Ladies and gentlemen, if, if you are impressed that you are a United States senator, you don't stack chairs and pick up napkins. However, he said, if you are striving to practice Philippians 2, 3, and 4, you'll serve others just as Christ in humility served you. You want unity in your life? You want peace? We want, I certainly want peace in my life. I want peace in my family. I want peace in my church. You want peace? Then reject selfishness and squash ego and promote humility and focus on others. And I assure you, it will happen. And God will bless it. Let's pray.
Our Father, we all struggle with that little narcissist living inside us. That little little piece of the sin nature that even when we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're still, we're still wrapped up in us. We still like to look at me. And it's so easy, Lord, to feel disgruntled and irritated and things just escalate and get worse and worse and worse. But Lord, I pray that You would help us to die to self every day and to live for Christ every day. And Lord, I know that the only way we can possibly do that, even begin to, to do that, is if we know You as our Savior. If we've not been forgiven by the power of Christ, if we don't have the Holy Spirit living inside us, then we can't possibly have a biblical focus. We don't have the capacity, we don't have the ability to even begin to resist that little narcissist living inside us. So Father, we who know Christ as our Savior today, I pray that we will be committed to living every day in the light of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And Lord, if there are those here today who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray they will bow the knee to Him today. He has done so much for us. He can do so much for them. The forgiveness of sin, the confidence of heaven, the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that You would help us. May the Spirit of God apply the Word of God to every heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.